Welcome to the Desperate for Hope podcast, conversations about suffering with Vinitha, the show where we're honest about the realities of suffering while staying anchored in the goodness of God. I'm Vinitha Reisner, and thank you for joining me and my guests who are well acquainted with suffering, but have found their hope in God in the midst of their pain. Paul, welcome to the Desperate for Hope podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's very good to be with you. Ah, Paul, we met several years ago, but your ministry has impacted my life for decades. I don't know if we've talked about this, but your book, Age of Opportunity, was the first time I realized in parenting that my kids weren't the problem, that I was the problem. I was uh-huh. so sure if I had different kids, we would have an amazing family. And you showed me, really, the Lord showed me through your book that I was the problem. And mm. that really opened my eyes to the gospel of grace, I would say, in a way that I hadn't seen it before. So I'm so looking forward to this conversation as That's you fun. talk about this in relation to suffering. Mm. Um, so for those of, for the people who don't know you, I'd love for you to just say a little bit about what you're doing now, your day-to-day life, and then maybe jump into your story of suffering. Yeah, well, my my primary work is just gospel writing. And I'm always working on another project. And project I'm working on right now is a Bible project. I've written gospel summaries of every book of the Bible. And then this Bible has, from Genesis to Revelation, a daily Bible reading plan you can finish in a year. At the end of every daily reading will be a devotional out of that reading by by me. So it's been a big, huge mountain to climb, but I'm I'm getting there. I'm writing devotionals that are will be in the month of August. So I just have September, October, November, and December to complete, and I'll be done. So it's been it's been the most exciting thing I've ever done. Uh, I've fallen in love with the Word of God all over again, and I get up every morning excited to write and feel very blessed that I've been chosen to do this project. <clears throat> Wow. I cannot wait for that. Your devotional, New Morning Mercies, I think everybody I have ever known has gotten that book from me. So I cannot wait to read another one. And this one just threaded through the Bible as people read along is Mm. is just even more Mm. amazing. So would love to hear, some people probably know your gospel, all the gospel literature that you've put out, but may not know your story of suffering. So I'd love for you to share that. Yeah, you know, I had some minor symptoms back in October 19th of 2014. Uh, My doctor said, you just live real close to a major hospital. Why don't you just go and they can check you out? I thought I would be released in a few moments with some medication or something. And before long, there were departments of five different, there are heads of five different departments of the hospital in my emergency room. And I knew I was very sick. I was in the midst of kidney failure and I didn't know it. And that began uh, a series of, well, it's been in the last seven years, 10 operations. And, and it's been, it's been very hard. Um, It, at times, didn't make sense why at the moment why at the moment of my greatest ministry influence I was rendered weaker than I've ever been in my life. 
uh, for a period of time, for two years, I had a surgery every four months. Well, if you have a surgery every four months, you you don't fully recover before you have the next surgery. And I was just getting weaker and weaker. Most recently, I've had a condition in my shoulders that has been extremely painful and has meant I can't dress myself and whatnot. I'm I'm at a point where I'm I'm getting some help with that and, and better. But yeah, that's my that's my story. It's been seven years of just unrelenting suffering. Wow. Do you have pain with that as well with the kidney failure? I know you have weakness with it. Uh, I have. I don't. I don't experience uh, pain. I do experience um, sleeplessness and fatigue. Uh, so my pattern now is I get about a half a day of work and then I'm, I'm pretty much done. I just don't have the energy after that. And I was known as the energizer bunny, uh, a guy of, of endless energy. And that's just not the case anymore. Mm, Yeah. I remember seeing you speak for the first time and you were running around the stage. I was just amazed at your energy. So I'm sure that that's hard reminding you, you know, of our limitations. So as you have written so much about the gospel, um, how did the gospel become more real to you in the midst of this suffering? You know, one of the things that I was confronted with and beneath it was, it was very humbling that much of what I thought was faith in Christ and the gospel of his grace wasn't that at all. It was just that I was healthy and well and I've always been able to do things quicker, quickly and productive, and there's a lot of pride in that. And, you know, the scripture says that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And that's really what I've experienced, that all of a sudden I began to experience what it really means to just entrust yourself to Jesus and in ways that that defy the logic of human strength and human health and human wisdom and human righteousness and all those things. I'll give you an example. During in the middle of that suffering, I was writing a book about parenting. That's the book is actually called Parenting. And when that first copy was delivered to me, I said tearfully to Luella, my wife, I don't remember writing this book. And that wasn't an exaggeration. It was the only time that I've ever sat down and read my own book cover to cover. Because I literally didn't remember the the process and content of that book. Now, that's what God is able to do. Um, Weakness in God's hands is a workroom for his grace. And, and I think, I don't know how, what you're going to ask next, but I want to speak to this, that Mm. uh, we hate weakness Mm -hmm. (laughs) because we hate to be dependent. We are naturally self-sufficient, independent human beings. That's what sin does to us. And so we don't like weakness, but 
God knows if we're ever going to know the deepest hope, hope and joy and peace of his work, he's got to crush that independence in us. Mm. And, and one of the ways he does that is to lead us through these moments of weakness. Uh, not because he's capricious and doesn't love us, but he wants us to, to experience power that is greater than any power we would ever independently have on our own. Mm, I love that. Weakness in God's hands is the workroom of God's grace. Yeah, um, I think that's a beautiful testimony because I think that is part of suffering always is is weakness in, in different areas of our lives. And so that's a well, great quote that I want to remember. Um, one of my um, biggest takeaways from your book, um, Suffering Gospel Hope When Life Doesn't Make Sense, which in which you tell your story um, about uh, the kidney failure, you say this, your suffering is more powerfully shaped by what's in your heart than by what's in your body or in the world around you. And that quote has stayed with me. I would, could you just explain that? What what did you mean by that for people who are just listening, hearing it for the first time? Well, suffering is never neutral, uh, what I mean by that is you never come to your own suffering empty. Uh, you always bring a bundle of things to your suffering that alters the way that you suffer, that shapes the way you suffer. That's why not everybody suffers the same. So mm-hmm. what's that bundle of things? You have a view of life. You have a view of yourself. You have a view of God. You have a view of meaning and purpose. Um, you you have a view of what you deserve and what you don't deserve and what life is about. And all of those, those uh, deeply theological things then shape the way that you suffer. For example, if, if you are convinced going into suffering that God is distant and absent and doesn't hear you, then you won't seek him and his help during your suffering. Mm. Or if you're convinced that you're basically a good person and you only deserve good things to happen to you, then you will struggle with deep anger while you're suffering. So suffering is always shaped by the things that you bring to it. In fact, I would say something even further than that. Suffering exposes what I believe. Mm. Suffering doesn't change what you believe. Suffering exposes what you've already believed. Mm. And so if, if a person who really believes, unshakably believes that God is good, that person won't experience anger with God during their suffering hmm. because you've already, you've already, you're already convinced that God is good. Now that doesn't mean you won't cry out to him. It doesn't mean you won't ask for your suffering to end, but you don't go, you don't have that war with God that so many people uh, have. That's something that is the result of something you brought to your suffering. I, hmm. I'll give you an example. I was, I was counseling a 
severely depressed uh, woman, and uh, she was talking to me about God. And as she was defining who she thought God was, I thought, if I thought that's who God was, I'd be depressed too. So her problem was she had this misshapen, unbiblical view of God that resulted in hopelessness in her life because she felt powerless and God was not a source of power that she would trust. Mm. Well, that was not something that was forced on her by her situation. That was something she brought to her situation and shaped the way she was dealing with it. Mm. Um, I was just writing an article this morning about do we actually look at God in our suffering or do we look at our problems? And it's sort of a similar thing. Like, what do we think about God when we think about our problems? Do we see his presence and provision and promises? Or do we just see the problems and that God sort of fades away? Or as this woman, maybe we don't even believe God is good or God cares. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I Look, the Bible is the most honest book ever written. I mean, the blood and guts and dirt of the fallen world are almost on every page of Scripture. So biblical faith will never require you to deny reality. If you deny reality, you may reach momentary peace, but you're not exercising biblical faith. Mm. But there's a balance to this. That doesn't mean that it's healthy to meditate on your problems. Because if you're if you meditate on your problems, you're going down. It, it's very important in the midst of your problems to meditate on God, on his character, on his power, on his presence, on his grace, on his faithfulness, on his love. And I think that's one of the, the major dif- disciplines of suffering well. Mm-hmm. It's requiring yourself not to let your suffering dominate your thinking, dominate the meditations of your heart. Now, that's hard because when you're, you know, you've been through it for decades. When you're suffering, there are a thousand uh, what ifs that plague you. There are a thousand if onlys that plague you. now we have the problem of WebMD, where we can go and create even more fear because we're self-diagnosing and we think we're dying of, of everything. It just doesn't work. And so you have to require yourself to focus on God. I have an Irish friend who's been a dear friend of mine, and he knew what I was going through, and he would send me a Irish choir singing a beautiful hymn. And I'd, I'd listen to that hymn in my chair because I couldn't have, didn't have much strength to get out of the chair, and I'd weep. Mm-hmm. But what was happening in that moment is the gospel was taking over my meditation. And for that moment, I wasn't thinking about what I was going through. I was thinking about God and his presence and his promises and his grace. Mm-hmm. So you got to fight the battle of your mind and not let your situation control your meditation, but, but God control it. Right. 
It was interesting. Recently, I took a picture with my iPhone camera and I put it on portrait mode. So I took a picture of something and everything faded into the background, but what I was focusing on, like that was crystal clear and huge and everything else faded into the background. And it's sort of a similar thing. Like if we are focusing on our problems, those are crystal clear and God is blurry in the background. Like maybe he can help, maybe he can't. But if we focus on God, then our problems take, we see them in a different light as well. You know, one of the things that impressed me as I've done this Bible project is that in, in some of the historical moments that were the saddest and the darkest for God's people, God speaks with the most clarity of his presence, his power, his restorative and forgiving grace. And it's like God's saying in the middle of darkness, wait a minute, I'm going to change the narrative here. I want the narrative to be about me. And that's what we need to do. We need to change the narrative that's in our head. What story are you telling yourself every day? Mm. Is it just the story of your suffering and your aloneness and nobody understands and how's this going to turn out? Or is God controlling the narrative? Now, what's what's wonderful about that is that's not playing monkey games with your mind. Because what grace does is it means your little story by God's power has now been embedded in the larger story of redemption. So you have a new story to tell yourself about who you actually are and where your hope is actually to be found. Mm -hmm. And in that way, you're not deceiving yourself. You're not lying to yourself, but you're actually telling yourself a narrative that is now your identity as a child of God. Mm. Yeah. And the narrative in which we put our lives in and our suffering in makes such a difference. I know in this Bible study, I outline these that I um that is coming out desperate for hope. I have um three principles that have really been sort of this lens or anchors through which I view suffering. And one is the presence of God, that He is with us, that He will never leave us. And and the next one is the purpose of God. And that is sort of that our suffering really is part of a much bigger narrative that God mm-hmm. is writing. And we may not know the purpose, but we know there is a purpose. And then lastly, another P is the promise of heaven, that this will end. Our suffering isn't Mm. just, um, it will end uh, and we will be in heaven one day. So we don't need to think it's going to go on forever. And as I was thinking about that and rereading your book, Paul, and I read a lot of your books, I feel like I got some of those principles from your writing because it feels like in reading what you write, you do talk about the presence of God and his power with you, his provision, the meaning of suffering, that God is sovereign and there's purpose and that that our suffering will end. And just wondering if you could speak to, to those um, from your own writing and experience, maybe the presence, purpose, and promises of heaven. Sure. I, I, the first thing I would say about just the the fact that God exists and is in control is is so significant. Here's what that means. Uh, human beings can't ultimately find hope by understanding everything. Because there are things that you just won't understand. Uh, 
Hope is found in trusting the one who is in control and understands all these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, my children would, I'd have to say no to them when they were little, very little. And they would, I knew I couldn't understand. They would never understand my explanation for why I had to say no. But I would say to them, does your daddy love you? And they say, yeah, my daddy loves you. Loves me. I said, your daddy, a mean daddy who just wants bad things for you. They'd say, no, no, no. I'd say, okay, go down the hallway and say to yourself, I don't want to know why my daddy said no, but I know my daddy loves me and I know he's good and I know he understands. And that's, that's our heavenly father. Our heavenly father can't make every explanation that we want because our minds couldn't contain it. So trust isn't, isn't found in demanding that I understand everything. Trust is, is found in entrusting myself to the purpose who understands and controls it all. That leads to a second thing, and it's taught all throughout Scripture that God's greatest gift to us is the gift of himself. It's the one place where the giver is the gift. Hmm. And so... Rather than saying, well, just do this and do this, God says, I know what you need. It's me. And I will go with you. And I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. There's one thing that can't be taken away. And it's God's presence. I think that's why after talking about suffering in Romans 8, Paul ends with the crescendo of nothing can separate us from the love of God. Because he wants us to know that God has created an unshakable bond with us. Um, and then his, his uh, power. I, I love what it says in Ephesians 1, that that power is the same power by which Jesus was raised from the dead. Mm-hmm. Look into that empty tomb. That's your power. Pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, what could there be, what definition of greater power than they could be in the power of resurrection? And then, then we have the promises of God. I don't know if you've thought about this, but the, the reliability of God's promises is only as good as the extent of his sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. God can only guarantee the delivery of his promises in places where he rules. Mm -hmm. So in my loft here, I can promise you things, but I can't promise you things at the loft next door because I have no power there. Since God rules everything all the time, there will never be a situation, never be a location where he is unable to deliver what he's promised. Mm. And the ultimate promise is the new heavens and new earth, that suffering and death will not win. Uh, The 1 Corinthians 15, that treatise on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, says that because he's risen, he is now the ascended King Christ, sitting at the right hand of God's throne. And know what he's doing now? He's putting enemies under his feet 
The last enemy is death. And then we will be ushered into a world where there is no more sin and no more suffering, no more pain, no more disappointment, but peace and righteousness will reign forever and ever. And these things that we're talking about, I can absolutely say, are what gets me up in the morning. Mm, Wow. I, I would say the same. And gives me reason to continue, even when things are hard. When I when I began to have this shoulder problem and began to be extremely painful and restricted, you know, my first thought is, oh, no, here we go again. Here's going to be another multi-year travail. And that's when you have to preach the gospel to yourself. I, I want to say one thing about that. It's really important that all of us understand that no one's more important in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. Mm. You are in a constant conversation with yourself. And what you say to you, about you, about God, about life, will shape the way you live, will shape your emotions, will shape your thoughts and desires and choices. And I think most people are are not aware of their private conversation. They're not aware of the things they say to themselves that are harmful or untrue. And so I would just encourage people, listen to your private conversation. Mm. Is God at the center of that conversation? What are you saying to you? I think we have this talk that we probably wouldn't say out loud, but we're thinking, how are we going to get out of this? Or is God even, does God even care? We may think those things to ourselves. And I have found when I dare to voice them to other people, that's when God's grace really can come in, when I'm willing to both admit it and let someone hear that private conversation there is such healing in that, whereas I think sometimes we have it, and then rather than responding with the truth of Scripture to ourselves, we just don't admit it to anybody, but it just sort of goes deeper into our hearts. I, I actually think that if we would say some of the fearful, doubtful things that we think, if we'd say them out loud, it would surprise us. <laughs> Most of the time, that conversation is not verbalized. And so we're, we, we get accustomed to the way we think, and we don't challenge those ways of thinking. And we just need to listen to your private conversation. And what is the fruit that that pro- private conversation is producing in your life? Mm. Now, I've asked myself sort of the question from Psalm 42, why are you cast down, oh, my yep. soul? And then... So why are you upset? And just really sort of digging beneath that and saying it aloud to God can really help. Because sometimes we have this vague sense of things are horrible, but we don't really take the time maybe to 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 go with God in those things and admit what we're feeling. Yeah, you know, you, you had mentioned earlier, uh, we don't always know what God's purpose is in our suffering. And I think that's absolutely true. We we need to be careful that we don't put words in God's mouth that he didn't speak. But there are, there are three places where Scripture does address 
that question. Mm. And I think it would be helpful for us to talk about that. First, in Romans 8, Paul makes it very clear that for God's wise purpose, he has chosen us to live in a dramatically broken world between the already of our conversion and the not yet of our home going. Paul says we live in a world that's groaning, waiting for redemption. Uh, you groan when you're in pain. You groan when you can't do what you're supposed to do. You, you groan when you're disappointed. So this world is groaning. And so it's pretty clear that suffering is a universal human experience. If you're not suffering now, you will someday. And if you're not suffering now, you're probably near somebody who is. And so God knew that his purpose for us would be best served by living in a world where suffering exists. Mm. And that's, that's all of us. So you, you suffer because you live in this broken, groaning world. There's a second thing uh, that the Bible clearly teaches that suffering is God's tool of uh, growing, maturing, sanctifying us. That you know this is true. It's almost silly to say, but you've never heard someone say, I had three of the easiest years in my life and I learned so much. You've never heard that, but you, you hear over and over again. You even hear this by unbelieving people. I went through a tough time and I learned so much. It's very clear that in God's hands, suffering is productive of the development of good character. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like it's just meaningless fate, and I can't escape it. There's a third thing that the Bible clearly teaches is that God uses suffering to qualify us to minister to other sufferers. Mm -hmm. Paul says, we comfort you with the same comfort that we received from God. And so, you know, it's not just the, Beneath it, I don't just own own my blessing. I don't even own my suffering. Hmm. My suffering belongs to the Lord. So you suffer because you live in a fallen world. You suffer because God loves you and wants to grow and mature you. And you suffer because God's called you to minister to the hurting people in this world. And suffering is what tenderizes you and makes you compassionate and understanding. No one gives grace better than a person who's cried out for grace themselves. Mm. Oh, wow. I love that, Paul. Um, and that's, I, I do write about those things in the Bible study. So it's it's neat that you mention them, that, that even though we don't know all the purposes of suffering when it happens, and we can't say this happened because of, you know, for my instance, you know, my son didn't die because God needed, um, Somebody said to me at his funeral, God needed another angel. Of, of course, that on multiple levels is not true. Um, but at the same time, there are so many purposes in suffering that the Bible talks about that we know are true. And 
And, you know, ultimately they are for our joy and God's glory. Yeah, I, I think the wisdom of God is shown by God doesn't talk about those three purposes in uh, with a specificity, individuality, but he, he talks about them generally for all of us. Mm-hmm. Because in particular moments, God doesn't tell us why this particular moment of suffering has hit me at this particular time. I don't have answers for that. But I have a general sense that God is a God of purpose and that all that he does in my life has purpose. Mm -hmm. I would say that idea has changed my theology of suffering because I think before my son died, I really didn't see purpose to suffering quite the same way. I mean, God had shown me there was a purpose to my having polio, but... It was after Paul died and I really grappled with why did this happen that this sense that God is sovereign and there is a purpose and there are 10,000 reasons really transformed how I lived in that, not thinking this was some random event and God maybe would clean it up, but there was no purpose. And knowing that God is purposeful in everything that comes into our life really, I think for everyone listening in their own suffering I think gives you hope in the midst of it. Because if it was random, that would make me feel hopeless. Yeah, and I, th- I think for those of us who are standing alongside of sufferers, it means we have wonderful things to say about God's presence and promises and purpose and suffering, but we should be careful that we not say more than God has said mm. and act like we know more than We actually know. I mean, sometimes, you know this is true because you've experienced it and so have I. The most powerful thing you can give a person in suffering is to model for them the presence of God. I'm going to be with you and your anger or depression or fear and doubt and suffering is not going to drive me away. Mm -hmm. And... And that way, we're, we're making God's presence visible. My mantra is God makes his invisible grace visible by sending people of grace to give grace to people who need grace. Oh, mm, say that again. God makes his invisible grace visible by sending people of grace to give grace to people who need grace. Mm. Wow. I love and that. And so I—, I this has been liberating to me because I, I've tried to live a ministry life. I don't have, a, have to have an answer for everything. Sometimes my most deeply theological answer is I don't have a clue, but mm. I know someone who is tender and kind and loving and powerful and wise. And in this moment where we're clueless, He's worthy of your trust. Mm. Well, that is a perfect segue into one of the things I wanted to ask you was how do you respond to people who have pretty deep questions in their suffering? Like, why is God letting me suffer? How how do you respond to those questions that I'm sure you've gotten as a pastor and a counselor and a friend? I, I, I think that those very questions are all over the Psalms. Mm -hmm. 
One of the things I think the reason that the Psalms are in the Bible is because they're meant, they're 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 there to keep us honest about the true nature of of faith. Uh, God will confuse you. He will do unexpected things. He will bring the unplanned and the unwanted into your life. And so being laden with questions is is in one way part of the life of faith. Of course I have questions. You know, trying to understand God in ways is like trying to put the ocean in a thimble. He's he's incalculably great. And and so I think the normal life of faith is 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 asking questions. Now it's I like to think of those questions being in two categories. One is the questions of wonderment. God, I just don't understand. And I want to trust you, but I don't understand what's going on in my life. I think that's appropriate and wonderful. And I think God receives those kinds of questions with a tender heart. Uh, They're not offensive to him. We don't disgust him when we ask those kinds of questions any more than when your child says, mommy, I don't understand. Um, the second, the second set of questions are what I would call the questions of accusation. Mm-hmm. And they may come in a question form, but they're accusing God of not being good. And Wonderment and accusation have completely different spiritual directions to them. Because in wonderment, I'm running to God with the struggles of my heart. In accusation, I've already determined I'm not going to run to God because I don't think he's trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And, and so... God is able to handle your questions. Hmm. Bring your questions to him. Uh, Better to bring your questions to God in humble, confused wonderment than to turn your back on God because you can't figure out who he is and what he's doing. Hmm. So so I, I think like the psalmist, when the psalmist says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will my enemies triumph for me and say, where is your God? That's an act of faith because you're bringing those questions to God mm-hmm. instead of uh, accusing the reputation of God to a friend as an act of rejection of him. And it just they're just two different pathways. Yeah, I, that's such an important distinction. Like we can have questions, but are questions driving us to God? Are we asking them of God or are they driving us away from God? Because we're basically accusing God. We're not even talking to God. We're just determined that God doesn't care. And so our questions are really of his character versus not understanding what's going on. Yeah. I, maybe we ought to talk about this too. Uh, sometimes what is revealed there 
is a difference, a disparity between your confessional theology and your actual street-level theology. Mm. Maybe on Sunday, you sing those songs with everybody else about God's goodness, His presence, His power. But on Tuesday, you're pretty mad at Him and, and not wanting to trust Him. A, a great example of this, it's, it's, I think, the primary example of a disparity between what you say you believe and what you actually believe is the life of Jonah. God calls Jonah to Nineveh. Uh, Jonah hates the Ninevites and can't, doesn't want to be part of God's work there. Runs in another direction, hops on a boat. God sends a storm and the sailors on the boat are trying to figure out whose fault the storm is. And they find Jonah and they ask him to introduce himself. Now listen to what Jonah says. He says, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. What? There is no actual fear of the Lord in this man's life, or he wouldn't have run from him. So you know that that's a cultural confession that is not actually what he believes. And so sometimes doubt is able to, to live in our lives because we think because we've said X on Sunday, we're okay, when actually we're not entrusting ourselves to our Lord. I think the enemy of our souls will gladly give us our formal theology if underneath it, he can control, control our hearts. Mm. Wow. Because mm. just because you have the right theological statement doesn't mean on a Tuesday when you're facing unthinkable things that you're actually entrusting yourself to your Lord. It's mm. so true. Is there, is there, a, is there a distance, a disparity between the formal theology that you say you believe and what you think about God and how you respond to God in the hardships of everyday life. That's sort of the rub of all of our suffering is, are we really believing, truly believing the things that we say we believe about God? And I would love for you to speak to somebody maybe who's listening that says, wow, I I probably have not been trusting God. I'm not asking questions of wonderment. I'm asking questions of like accusations. What can they do if they, they recognize themselves in that? Well, I can tell you what not to do. Okay. Don't hide in shame. Don't wallow in guilt. Uh, Jesus has completely carried your guilt and carried your shame. On the cross, Jesus shamed shame on the cross so that in my dark, darkest, foolish, most faithless moments, I can run to God and know he won't turn me away. So don't be so afraid that you've stepped over the line in your anger with God that he's turned his back on you. The, the, the most horrible moment of Jesus on the cross was the moment when God turned his back on, the son, on his own son. And Jesus cries, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus took every single ounce of my rejection 
So I would never again see the back of God's head. So the first thing you do is run to God, not run away from him. He's already paid the price for your disbelief. He already paid the price for your doubt and your anger and your accusation. Second thing, uh, run to God's word. Mm-hmm. I would say run to the Psalms. Because if you're suffering and you can't relate to the Psalms, you're probably comatose. Because it's all over there and not just human suffering, but just the goodness of God in the face of human suffering. Third thing I'd say is run to godly community. How about getting on your cell phone and calling a trusted friend and say, I'm having trouble trusting God. Would you help me? Mm-hmm. Would you walk with me through this? Would you be an encouragement to me? Would you every once in a while remind me of things that I couldn't, I can't remind myself of? So run to God, run to his word, run to his people. Uh, we were not hardwired to suffer on our own. This sounds cliche, but I don't care. Suffering well is a community project. Mm-hmm. I need help. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that just has been so clear to me is I would not have made it through without the body of Christ, without dear friends that just held me up and would pour things into me that I was not able to pour into myself. I mean, the closest of those is my wife, Luella. She would confront my moments of disbelief and say, Paul, do you hear what you're saying to yourself? (laughs) And that would sort of get my attention. And she would remind me of God's presence and his promises again. So run to God. You don't have to be afraid of him. Run to his word. It's meant to give you life and run to his people. Mm. So say you are the person on the other end of the phone and somebody says, wow, I'm struggling to trust God or something tragic has just happened in my life. What would you say are wise things to say and do um, being on the kind of the other end of that phone call for people who don't know what to say? First thing I would do is pray for the person. Mm. And pray, again, God's presence, God's promises, and God's power, uh, that it would be evident to them. Second, this is not a time for a lecture on the sovereignty of God. Mm-hmm. It's a time for that person to know that God's mercies are new every morning. I. I've just recently writ- written on the passage of Lamentation that says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies num- never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's what I want to pour into this person's life. Mm. And, you know, sometimes it's best to say, look, I'm, I don't want to answer you right now. Let me pray for you and let me let me get back because I really want to be helped to you and just 
grab a hold of some of those passages of scripture so you're ready to have a conversation that is uplifting and hopeful. Um, and then I would say to this person that whatever your struggle is with God right now, you don't have to hide from him. God, God welcomes you into his presence. Uh, the cross of Jesus Christ ever, forever ends our need to hide. And then I think it's, if you're able, you have to be careful that you don't make promises you're not going to keep. It's wonderful if you say to that person, I'm going to keep checking up on you. Mm. Now, if you can't do that, it's really discouraging for people to make those promises and not follow through. Mm. Uh, I'm just going to say this. I think as a generality, we say too much, I'll pray for you. And, we, mm -hmm. and we, five minutes later, we've forgotten that we've made that promise. So if you're going to promise your involvement, make sure you follow through. Mm. Thank you. That's a great word. I I think one of the things I have been doing is praying first for myself that God would remind me to pray. I mean, it sounds so simple, but yep. God doesn't even put that on us. We can say, God, remind me to pray, you know, and then I try to write it down on a prayer card. And But that is such an important thing is to follow through on what we say, because I think in suffering, we try to tell somebody, oh, we'll be there, we'll do this. And then we have other things going on and we forget and... Yeah, you know, and what what we do forget too is that the most acute, dramatic moments of suffering are followed by a long tail of suffering. Mm -hmm. And the church, people of God, tend to be really good at rising to the moment. But before long, everybody's gone back to their life, and that person feels terribly alone. The crisis is over. But they're left with the long-term impact of that crisis in their lives. Mm, remembering the long tail of suffering and really remembering it's never too late. Even if you haven't called in a month, you can call. Yep. I think we feel like, oh, I haven't kept up, so I've lost my opportunity. But recognizing you've never lost it, you can always call. You can always pray. Yeah. Amen. I absolutely mm. agree. Well, Paul, you and Loella um, have become friends for me and Joel, and you guys are really fun people. You have a great sense of humor. And in this podcast, I love to talk about what brings people joy, what makes them laugh. I'd love to hear that. Uh, you mentioned it. God, God has blessed me with a wonderful sense of humor. Uh, there's never a day in our lives where we don't laugh. And whether that's saying silly things to Loella or making witty observations about life. We're very thankful for that. I'm a, I'm a creative by nature. So I love to cook. I think making a meal is a way to bring joy into people's lives. I'm a painter by avocation and I love creating beauty that way. And then I'm just, I'm just blown away by the pleasures that are everywhere around us in this beautiful world that God made. Mm. I mean, if you, I was walking along a stream one day and there was a feather on the ground and I picked it up. It, when I saw on the ground, it just looked gray. When I picked it up, I rubbed it with my fingers and it was 
stripes of white and black all the way up that. It was beautiful. And I'm thinking, this is one feather of one bird that God wouldn't leave one color, but he had to make it more interesting than that. Uh, if you cut a cut a square of bark off a tree, it's not just brown. It's 50 shades of brown with incredible texture. And that's everywhere you look in God's world. And then God gave us pleasure gates, eyes and ears and mouth and the ability to touch so we could take in this beauty that he's created. And I want to say to people, get outside your house. Go to a zoo. Stand at the edge of a pond. Walk through a forest. Smell some flowers. And and just remember what joy God has at creating this kind of joy for us. Mm. we should all look out of our windows every day and just smile at what God has created around us. It's just hard to imagine. I mean, grass, uh, you know, a sea of green, that's all these individual little stems of grass. I mean, how crazy is that? You know, so I think if you do that, it just brings joy and mm-hmm. it makes you makes you smile if you if you watch a puppy you're going to laugh or the wild wildly actions of a cat mm-hmm. make you smile or listen to the chirping of a bird i remember we were on when i was on staff at the 10th presbyterian church we were on a pastoral retreat at the jersey shore and we're we're having a bible study and Phil Riken said, stop. He said, everybody be quiet. He said, there's a mockingbird out there. And so he listened. And this mockingbird did the calls of seven different birds. And then he'd start again. Well, all of a sudden, we are laughing and worshiping just because somebody had the sense to point out that bird to us. So mm. there are so many things in the world that are beautiful and bring you joy and bring you smile. And if you can't find them in your house, get out of your house Mm -hmm. and enjoy God's world. Yeah. Wow. Pay attention. Because I want to say one other thing. Luella and I love museums because we love the ability that God has given people to capture the beauty of his world Uh, or go to a good concert. Music is an amazing thing. All those sounds of all those instruments came out of the mind of God. It's, it's amazing. So we need to laugh and we need to smile and we need to find things in our lives that God has given us that stimulate that in us. Mm. Well, you and Noella just um, have a way of noticing beauty that Joel and I have been to your loft and we both think, particularly me, it is the most beautiful place I've been to. Like I was sort of in awe at the way Luella and you both have curated beauty in your home. Mm -hmm. And so it just speaks to the fact that you live that and you love beauty and you see it as from Mm -hmm. God. And Mm -hmm. that just brings joy, whether you can get out of your house or not, just to curate beauty. It doesn't have to be expensive. It can just be paying attention. So I love the way you model that. 
Absolutely. And um, just one last question, Paul. Um, this podcast is called Desperate for Hope. And we, I like to ask guests, what, where have you found hope practically one way when you felt most desperate for it? You know, I, I think, uh, you know, the spiritual answer would be in the word of God. But there are times when even that seems hard. I really do believe that it is in being vulnerable mm -hmm. so that friends feel the welcome to give you hope. Mm. And I, I would have never gotten through what I've been through in the last seven, eight years if I hadn't been surrounded by loving, patient, godly friends who spoke hope into my heart when I couldn't find it. Mm, praise God. Well, I feel like your your um, our conversation and the words that you spoke spoke hope into my heart. So I'm I'm praying that it does the same for the people listening. So thank Amen. you so much for for joining me today, Paul. I've loved our conversation. It's my honor, and you are you're one of my heroes because you've been through hell and back, and yet you have such a sweet spirit and such a desire to serve and to love. And when, when people ask me, who are your suffering heroes? I always say, Vanitha Reisner. <laughs> she, she's, she's one of those. So you, you are a beacon of hope and I'm honored that we have this friendship. Oh, well, our, your, our friendship has meant, means so much to me. So thank you again, Paul. You're so welcome. appreciate you. Thanks for listening to the Desperate for Hope podcast. This podcast is being released with my upcoming Bible study, Desperate for Hope, Questions We Ask God in Suffering, Loss, and Longing, in which I explore the questions that many of us have asked God in our pain. To learn more about this study, other resources, and my guests, visit my website at vanitha.com and check out the show notes. If you enjoyed listening to this show, please consider rating it and subscribe so you can get new episodes as soon as they come out. 